Welcome to Intrinsic Motivation from a Homie's Perspective podcast, where we meet experts from all walks of life to learn their intrinsic motivation so that they can share it with the world. What do we have in store today? Stay tuned to find out Good evening, everybody out there in podcast land. You are in tune to another episode of Intrinsic Motivation from a Homie's Perspective. This is Hamza. And I am David. And today we have a lot of validation, if you will, someone that has been stamped in the community by some heavy hitters. Uh, he has actually been endorsed by celebrity Jenny McCarthy. She said that he is the new leader of the positive thinking movement. And shout out to all the Wayne Dyer fans, highly uh, endorsed by him as well. Chicken Soup for the Soul author, Mark Victor Hansen. So we have a heavy hitter. He's been verified through psychology today as the one of the top counselors and life coaches in the USA. And he's also been verified through marriage.com. So maybe he can help bring down that divorce rate. We'll see in this next hour. <laughs> Without further ado, I'd like to welcome David Essel to the podcast. Welcome, David. Uh, hey, Hamza, David, great to be with you guys. And we won't need more than 30 minutes, Hamza, to reduce the divorce rate. So we'll take the first 30 minutes to do that. <laughs> and then we'll move on to some other topic. <laughs> What's funny about that is people would always say, well, where have you been all my whole life? <laughs> why, did it, why did it take so long? Well, David Thompson, David Thompson and I always say there's no accident. And so this Angel on a Surfboard, I love the title of that book because I am a huge surf fan. Um, we can get into that. So maybe that 30 minutes will help those folks, and then we can kind of go out to the stratosphere. That <laughs> sounds great. <laughs> so I guess the, the original question we always ask, you know, who's David? I, I know I gave you the accolades and all that at the beginning, uh, but were you born with the uh, positive development in your womb as soon as you came out? Your first words were law of attraction. I mean, how did all that come together? <laughs> My first words were, I got this, mom and dad. Let's watch. <laughs> Uh, you know, I, I started, I've been in the industry of personal growth for 40 years now. Um, it's, it just amazes me that it's been that long. I started out in the world of health and fitness and sports psychology. So in the beginning, I worked with athletes, um, mainly tennis players, basketball players. I was a basketball player in college. And so I was very drawn to, to those. And I, and I worked with golfers as well. And then in 1990, guys, I had this huge opportunity um, that was self-created, but it was an opportunity nonetheless. And I was getting really bored in the world of health and fitness and sports psychology, and I decided to take my counseling and my life coaching into the general population. So in 1990, we switched over, and we, since then, until now, we've worked with, I mean, some of the most horrific cases of abuse and helping people to reclaim their existence. Um, we've helped couples that where there's been affairs reclaim their marriage. Um, people, we've helped to triple, quadruple their income year after year after year. So, you know, our, our whole work ethic changed when we left that very specific world of sports psychology, health and fitness, and then moved into the general population. Um, you know, we've written 10 books. The last four have all gone number one bestseller. But I, I always love to add this part is that, guys, I wrote books for 20 years before we got a number one bestseller. So when people are out there with massive goals and they're getting frustrated and they're saying, you know, I've been at this weight loss or this double my income for six months and it's not happening, 
I always say, hey, listen, chill out, because we wrote for 20 years before we got something happening. And, and, and that's not a bad thing. It's just life. And as long as you're pursuing goals that are meaningful to you, it could take longer than we want. Uh, great intro, uh, David. And one thing that I, I do want to highlight, you talked about that 20 years before something happened. I, I thought that was huge. But what I also had for a huge takeaway, you said that your change in 1990 was self-created. And yeah. in the positive thinking and law of attraction or spiritual world and what have you, we're all taught that we're all self-created. This is everything that we've put in our mind, either consciously or subconsciously, it manifests. And I'd like for you to take a little bit of time there where you were able to measure the two of self-creation and you saw that uh, 20 years later something happened versus uh, giving up and thinking, okay, why am I doing all this? Is this fruitless? Yeah, and the reason I use the word self-creation is because I got to a place where I was really bored with my work. And in that instant, it's up to us to make a decision. You know, you can allow fate to make a decision for you, and if you're bored and burned out, you can keep doing what you're doing because you like the money or you like the people you work with or you don't think you can do anything else. But what we teach in our work is that when you hit that state of boredom, uh, you can wait until burnout, absolutely, and then see how good your decision-making skills are, which they aren't going to be really good when you're in burnout, or you can self-create. In other words, you start to look and you see a pattern, a pattern maybe for some people that were drinking more than we want to, others that were in a career that's dying or dead. For me, it was just that I was doing the same lectures all over the world over and over and over again, and I just got bored of hearing myself speak, quite frankly. I needed more inspiration. I needed change. I needed more variety. Um, and, and, you know, we met, you mentioned the law of attraction. From 1980, guys, until 1990. I taught the law of attraction and then in 1996 I had one of the most incredible changes ever happened to me when I interviewed the founder of Transcendental Meditation he is no longer with us his name was Maharishi Mahesh Yogi and I was hosting a radio show at that time we were with Westwood One and Maharishi chose our radio show as the only media outlet to celebrate the 40th anniversary of Transcendental Meditation. For people that aren't familiar with TM, it is the most widely studied form of meditation in the world. Our own government has put millions of dollars into studying the efficacy of TM, Transcendental Meditation. So we were blown away that we got this opportunity. But something really wild happened. Up from 1980 to 1996, I was traveling the world speaking on things like whatever you believe you can achieve and whatever thoughts you put out must come back in kind, which is basic training of the law of attraction, and the law of attraction has been around forever. And all of a sudden, Maharishi, during a break, says, hey, David, and he was amazing. He was funnier than hell, had this outrageous laugh. He giggled throughout the whole interview. And during the break, he said, you love to talk about positive affirmations. And I said, absolutely. And he said, are they your reality? And I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, tell me your favorite one right now. And there was an affirmation that I had said, guys, every morning for 20 years, 25 years. And it was this. I am David Essel, a child of God, happy, healthy, and sober today. And he looked at me and said, that's beautiful. And I said, thank you. And then he said, is that your reality? And I lied. 
I said, yes, it is my reality. He said, good. He said, any of those thoughts you have that are in your reality, continue to work them. If they're not in your reality, you may want to change your way of thinking. But if they're working, keep doing it. So we got off the interview, and again, he was amazing. <clears throat> Excuse me. A couple weeks later, I'm speaking in Orlando, Florida. I get off stage. There's a woman, tiny little woman, waiting way in the back of this long line. I finally get to her, and she said, hey, listen, I really only have 20 minutes left to interview you. I just flew in from Iowa to do an interview with you, and we got to go grab coffee because i got a flight to catch. And I said, oh, what magazine are you with? And she said, I'm not. I'm with Maharishi. And I said, you flew down here because Maharishi asked you to? And she said, yeah. So we got coffee, and she said, he has one question for you. He loved the interview. And what do you remember? If there's one thing that you got out of that interview, David, what do you remember? And Hamza and David, it was the weirdest thing. You know, I had interviewed Wayne Dyer a billion times and Deepak and Susie Orman and all these big stars, and I could always remember, shoot, six months, a year, ten years later, what were the things that we talked about. And I looked at her and I said, I can't remember a thing from Maharishi. She goes, oh, come on, go deeper, you must. And I said, well, the only thing I can remember is that he had so much joy. Hmm. And she said, David, I'm going to tell you something that you may not understand or you may not like to hear <clears throat> right now, but I'm going to share it with you. The reason that you can only remember his joy is because that is the one thing missing from your life. Hmm. Now, I looked at her, guys, and I said, wait a second. I live on the beach. I drive this. I host this show. We're in 300 cities across the country. What do you mean? I, I'm doing what I love. That's a crazy statement. She goes, I know. I know everyone feels that way, but I've been with him for 36 of his 40 years, and when a group of us get around and he'll speak for eight straight hours, we will walk out of that lecture, and each of us will only remember the thing that we need to change, and that's a gift that he brings. So I blew it off, guys, and I just said, hey, listen, I love Maharishi. I'm not quite sure about you, but tell him when you see him next. I think he's amazing, and I love the interview. Three weeks later, I come out of a four-day binge. I was an alcoholic and a cocaine addict. At 2.30 in the afternoon, 1996, on a Tuesday, at around 5 o'clock, I look in the mirror, and I said two things. Number one, you have no joy. You cannot have an addiction to food, alcohol, nicotine, television, smoking, vaping. You cannot have any addiction and have joy. So number one is that you have no joy. Number two, your affirmations are lies. They're not the truth. And what Maharishi said changed my whole way of working. When we're waking up, and, and like for myself, I was saying for 25 years, I'm a child of God, happy, healthy, and sober, and every day I'm drinking. That is called a lie. That destroys integrity. It makes us feel good in the moment because that affirmation is so powerful as heartmath.org has uh, diagnosed through MRIs, etc. When you have a positive affirmation, there's a cascade of chemicals released in the brain. It makes you feel good. So every morning while I was lying to myself with affirmations, I was feeling good. But then come 8 o'clock at night, at the end of my last counseling session of the day, I would open up my first bottle of wine. So there was this huge shift, and I started to look at the reality of thought versus the mysticism and the fantastical thinking that we've been taught. And all of a sudden, it dawned on me. You know, 
myself, I, I, and I make apologies in my books that I am so sorry I misled people for so long, but myself and all my work were based on fantasy. So when you're saying I am a millionaire and you're earning $50,000 a year, that is a lack of integrity. We're lying to ourselves. When we're saying that I'm a size 6 when you're a size 18, that is a lie. So, guys, my whole world changed, and, and in the change came some really profound openings and healings. When I stopped lying and teaching how to lie with our affirmations, all of my clients started healing so much quicker because we're basing our work in reality, not some fantastical thinking. And the other thing is, over 27 years as a host, my last role was with SiriusXM, and interviewing, you know, I mean, even stars of The Secret, like Dr. Joe Vitale, they all told me the same thing, that how they created their outrageous body or their millions of dollars or their incredible love relationship wasn't via thought. While thought can be helpful, it was that all these people were willing to do what 90% of the rest of us won't do. And Joe Vitale said to me on the SiriusXM show, I said to him, I go, Joe, in the secret, it says that you were homeless. You became a millionaire via the power of your thought. I want to hear, is that true? Is that all you did was think and checks came in the mail and you became a millionaire? And he said, David, he goes, they left out the most important information. Here's the truth. I was homeless. I had a positive attitude. But I worked seven days a week, 12 hours a day for years to make my first million dollars before the secret had even heard of me. And when they edited it down, they left out all the work that I had done to become wealthy after being homeless. And so then from 1996 to today, guys, my work has been, you know, in our, our last book, Focus, uh, well, the one right before, after that was um, Angel on a Surfboard, Hamza, that you mentioned, but the one before that, Focus, where we actually talk about how we need to drop the law of attraction. That book was just rated as one of the top 100 goal-setting books of all time, right next to Dale Carnegie, which is probably one of the greatest awards we've ever received. But when people say, how did your book in such a short period of time be equal to all of the other 99 top goal-setting books of all time? And I say the same thing to everyone, because we teach reality. And when we get out of fantastical thinking and get into reality, it is amazing how life can change. Mm. That, that's a, such a phenomenal story. Uh, we had a, a guest maybe about a year and a half, two years ago, David, I think. She, she actually lived, on the, uh, lived with Maharishi, uh, both here in the States and in India. So uh, it mm. sounds like you know, even with the folks that you met in, in the introduction talking about Jenny McCarthy and others, I know they're huge proponents of transcendental meditation and uh, all the things that you're talking about. I think the next book would be, if it doesn't exist, How We Lie With Our Affirmations. That, I think that's an awesome title. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, guys, we, last weekend, we had, we, we, I did a, every year, once a year, I do a blowout eight-hour seminar, and we, we did it last weekend. We sold out, and this was by far the most attractive uh, topic that we talked about almost all day or the response we got from the crowd was amazing about how they all said at the end, oh my God, I didn't realize that for the last 10 years or five years or 15 years that when I wake up in the morning and I say I'm a size two, when I'm a size 18, I'm lying to myself. 
like, and, and then what, and what's the end result of that? If we're lying to ourselves on a daily basis, eventually we're going to lose momentum to do the work necessary to actually achieve the goal we want. Mm. And it, it destroys integrity and it, it destroys our self-confidence and self-esteem because we know what we're saying isn't valid. It isn't true. So, but you know, how did I get there was that I was just David and Hamza. I was just a parrot. When I started in 1980, you know, I had my gurus and whatever they said was true. I, I believed them. So I was really just speaking out of other people's words, not my own experience for the most part until the Maharishi interview. And then after that, I said, you know, I've got to get some integrity in my life here. So I, ha- you know, I got clean, I got sober. I changed this whole concept about from fantastical thinking to reality thinking. And as several of my friends had said and and people that worked for me over the years, if there was anything that was going to derail your career, it was when you changed from this positive thinking guru. And it's funny, Jenny McCarthy says, I'm the new leader of the positive thinking movement. It's a, a funny story how that happened. But you know, you change from this positive thinking guru, and we thought that you would lose momentum. But instead, guys, just the opposite happened. When we made the change, even though we were doing phenomenal, it just increased dramatically the number of people we could help and the number of lives that were being changed. Oh, absolutely. And, and shout out to Michael Jackson for making the song, and you highlighted it that you can't really escape that man in the mirror. You, you know, we can't. And, and that's one of the things, you know, for all of our listeners, double check those positive thoughts, those positive affirmations, the positive intentions. Double check and make sure. Now, they can be exciting. You know, they, they can be um, potentially in your world. But I would much rather have people make affirmations that are realistic now and do the work, because that's really it. In, in our book that went number one, Positive Thinking Will Never Change Your Life, but this book will, we share in there that about 20% of our greatest success in life will come from our thought process, and 80% of the greatest change in our life will come from our willingness to do the steps that we're avoiding, that we're procrastinating on on a daily basis. You know, and in the book, we, I mean, we have stories about people like Evelyn Keeling who lost, well, she actually was 425 pounds overweight. I mean, if you could just imagine, guys, your body right now, and you put 425 pounds on top of it, um, I mean, she was just a massive person. She had to be wheeled into a gym when she first started her life transformation. But here's the wildest thing. When she did the work that she didn't want to do, clearing out her, her kitchen, not going to fast food stores, going into the gym six days a week, as wild as this sounds, in her 40s, she started the process, and in her 50s, she walked on stage in front of 15,000 screaming fans in Las Vegas as a bodybuilder. Mm. Unbelievable <laughs> transformation. And is she a positive thinker? Yeah. But she'll even say to anyone who asks, it was her willingness to walk or get wheeled into the gym, how humble and vulnerable she was. It was her willingness to drop all the food that was her comfort food. It were all these difficult action steps that led to her success. And so that's why we're doing the work we're doing. And we're, you know, we're on a radio show like yours is to let people know that there's a pathway out there. 
from massive weight loss, a great increase in your income, a forgiveness of people who have betrayed us so we can move on with an open heart. I mean, there's all this reality that we can have if we're willing to do the work. Mm-hmm. And it's funny here in the States because we are so used to the microwave, push the button, and everything will be okay. Do you think that that is the universe's grace? Like we are introduced to law of attraction, but it's just an entryway to get you to do the life's work. Well, if we, if, now that is a brilliant statement. The, the problem with that is that, you know, when we have, and, and I'm going to use the word mass consciousness, which means when we have a society, and especially in the world of personal growth, that initially when, like, the secret came out and the law of attraction was hot around 2006, 2007, and we have someone like Oprah supporting it, we run into a problem of, you know, for most of us saying, I'm going to get started with this positive thinking, but I know I'm going to have to do really hard work. I wish that that was the truth, but the reality is for most people that go into the law of attraction, they go into it because of its promises of doing nothing and receiving everything. Mm -hmm. So if you can imagine the statement, whatever you put out into the universe must respond in kind. If that was true, you would not have a radio show. I would have nobody buying my books. I would have no clients as a counselor and a master life coach. I would have no groups to speak to. If, if the law of attraction was real, mm-hmm. it's a fallacy. Now, if you put something out into the universe and it responds in time, that would be called a miracle. So you wake up, you go to bed tonight, and you say, you know what? I'm going to earn a million dollars tomorrow. And if you get a check for a million dollars, that's not the law of attraction. That's a miracle. Because for any law to be real, it must be repetitive and repeatable every time. So that means that in the secret, when they say, Imagine a red Maserati in your driveway. Well, if the law of attraction was a law, everyone who imagined a red Maserati should have one the next day. So that's what we're here for is to share. Listen, if you use those type of techniques in order to get you into doing the work you'd rather not do, great. But most people don't do that, Hamza and David. Most people will look at the law of attraction and the teachers with their, you know, webinars on how to make $100,000 in three days through the law of attraction and all this insanity. And because we are so into instant gratification, as you mentioned, we don't want to look any deeper. If someone says, hey, you can have a car tomorrow in your driveway just by following this affirmation technique, well, who wouldn't want that? But it doesn't work, and that's our work now, is to say, listen, mass consciousness is very powerful, and when you get a group of people together and you get celebrities saying that X is real, a lot of us aren't going to do anything other than just buy what they're saying. We're not going to examine it because we really don't want to do the work necessary to receive those great benefits. Does that make sense? You know what? You, you are really highlighting the uh, Monday withdrawal right? Like if you go to these things on the weekend, I mean, it's such a high. You're like, whoa, my goodness. Yeah. Starting Monday, I'm going to, and then Monday comes and all the air is out of your, out of your sails. <laughs> <laughs> it is so true. You know, in, in our book, Positive Thinking Will Never Change Your Life, we say this, if you're going to a two-day intensive, a one-day intensive, if you're going to a 14-day intensive, I don't care what, go and enjoy it and have fun, but only if you can afford a professional accountability partner after that two or seven day event. 
In other words, because of what you just said, we can get all fired up. We're in a crowd of people. People are screaming, I'm ready to change my life and all that great stuff. And then Monday comes and they go, you know, I'm going to start tomorrow, Tuesday. It was a long trip back. Uh, let, let me catch my breath on Monday and start on Tuesday. But what we say is go to those things, but only if you can afford someone that when you get home, you're going to share what your changes are going to be and you're going to ask them to hold your feet to the fire. Now, if you do it that way, those two days or four days or seven day intensives can work. But if you just do what most people do is you go to them, you come home, and within, oh, my God, less than 14 days, most of us are back to our old patterns. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And let me ask you about that accountability partner because when you go to some of these things, I know Esther is very famous for saying this, right? Like you, you come back, right, on that Monday, and you may still have that high, but you feel like you're in a vacuum. It's only you, and everyone in, around you in your immediate circle are like, what the hell are you talking about? And, you know, you want to kind of get back to, you know, not being ostracized. So would, would it be better to have an accountability partner beforehand, or how do you go about changing your immediate circle if you want to make the changes? I think any time you want serious change, my belief is you're going to have to have an accountability partner. I was helping people get sober for 20-plus years while I was still a raging alcoholic. No matter how many thousands upon thousands of people I got sober before I did, I couldn't use the same darn tools on myself. It just wasn't working. I would do the same thing that so many of us do when we struggle with addiction. This is it. It's Saturday night. I'm starting fresh tomorrow. Or it's Sunday. I'm starting fresh tomorrow. And I couldn't pull it off. And so, you know, if I've been doing this work for 40 years and there was a major change, and this is just one of the major changes that I needed help with, I had to reach out and ask for help. So if you do it before you go to the intensive or when you come home, it really doesn't matter to me as much as make sure if it's a big goal and it's one that you've had for a while that you haven't been able to achieve, the odds are you're not going to be able to on your own. It's a sign of strength to reach out to someone, a personal trainer, a counselor, a therapist. Uh, It's a sign of strength to reach out and to say, I have a massive goal. I haven't been able to achieve it. I want your help. I need your help. That is a sign of strength. Mm. Let me ask you this, David. So how hard was that for you to, to be living one life and preaching one thing and then going to bed every night and knowing that you were struggling yourself with, uh, you know, at the time, alcohol and drug addiction. Um, how, how, how was that? I mean, you were almost like you're living two lives. You're saying one thing and then behind closed doors. And then the people who were around you in your circle, were they aware of what you were going through addiction-wise? Great questions. And the answer is I had no shame, no guilt, nothing because of the power of denial. Um, my de- denial is amazing. Um, you know, you, you see people dying of CPOD. Um, you see people dying of lung cancer and still smoking. Um, you know, mm-hmm. you know like, like the addiction, in, in, and I think for a lot of us, the addiction is mainly a mental one. Um, but that addiction is so strong that I was able to justify it by saying, you know, this is what wealthy men do. Wealthy men drink to relax. We get together and drink together to create more business. I had every justification and rationalization in the world. So there was no struggle, internal struggle with me at all um, because of denial. After I got clean and, and stopped everything is when I looked back and said, wow. 
And, and it's fascinating, you know, because my lack of integrity, and just what you said, I was definitely living two lives. My lack of integrity was not only in the fact that I was helping people get sober while I was an, an alcoholic, but my lack of integrity was also that, that I had a face is that I was teaching people that as long as you did the right affirmation with the right energy behind it, starting with the words, I am, that you can achieve anything in life. And believe it or not, that was more difficult for me to deal with because I had been traveling for so long preaching that this is all you need to do is get your mind right and everything else will follow. That was more difficult for me to come to grips with and eventually to apologize for than the addiction part of it. Um, And then to answer your question about my associates and friends, because when you're in the world of addiction, you surround yourself usually with other people in the world of addiction, um, yeah. there really wasn't any pushback, you know? I mean, the business people I hung out with all drank just like I did. Uh, my friends drank like I did. So there was no disconnect. Um, I didn't have people coming up to me and saying, you know, that what are you doing out drinking till 2 in the morning on a Friday when you've got something to do Saturday afternoon, you're doing a lecture or Saturday night, like, no one would question me because I surrounded myself with people who were just like me. Yeah, yeah that's a good point. The, the other thing that I'm thinking, well, I thought of a number of things as you were talking about that, David. Um, and, and I wanted to think about when you were saying in the 90s, it's totally different from 2019. And back then, everyone didn't throw a phone out and, and capture you on video. <laughs> <laughs> you know? That is so good. That is so valid, right? Oh, no doubt. Man. Hey, I'm trying to think. What, what did, did social media hit like around 2008? I'm, I'm thinking, did Facebook get really popular around then? Yes, yes. I, th- I think it was. So, you know, and by then I was clean. So, but you're right. I mean, if you look at the whole 1990s, if, if, if social media was around then and I'm out and, you know, God knows they, people get caught on doing all kinds of ridiculous things and then it's replayed on social media, yeah, that could have been a mess for me. Um, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, you ever heard the saying about the, what is it, the hairdresser's hair and the cobbler's shoes? Have you ever heard yeah. of that thing? Sure. Right? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, in a way – when when that happens, uh, we just had a guy last week, and, and we were talking about the things. On the surface, it seems like trials and tribulations. But ultimately, when you look back, it's those things that make you endearing and makes you more human, and you can relate to the people you're trying to help. So I wanted to get your, your take on that. Refu- I mean, obviously, you made the change, and congratulations to you, but you will really understand why it's so hard for people to keep getting back on the wagon because you had actually gone through it. Yeah, and I think that's one thing. And, and here's something else, and I, I could never prove this, but I think you guys are both going to be able to, to get into alignment. I believe that even when I was an alcoholic and an addict, um, and, you know, I never used during work, and I didn't have hangovers during work. I mean, I, when, when I was at work, whether it was on the phone or Skype or in person, I was extremely present. Um, and I made sure to arrange my schedule so that I would be present for every session. But I think one of the reasons why I was an addict, an alcoholic, that we received so many people coming in is that they intuitively knew, I knew what they were going through. 
they could sense it. They, 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 none of them ever said to me, hey, did you ever struggle with addiction? Because, man, you know this shit. <laughs> but that, <laughs> that's, that's how they treated me. You know, they, they treated me with this utmost respect. And then after I got clean, people started doing the same thing, but they started doing it verbally. Like, you know, I, I really want to work with you because you've gone through, and I don't think there pretty much is anything I haven't gone through, whether that's good or bad, it, it, it makes us who we are. But when people say, oh, my God, you know, you've gone through bankruptcy, you've gone through multiple divorce, you've gone through addiction recovery three different times for three different addictions, like, holy crap, I want to work with you because you were able to do what I haven't yet. And that's a great feeling. And it gives me a lot of empathy. It gives me a lot of compassion. You know, when we look at the world, any topic that we work work with, whether it's addiction recovery or struggling in relationships, people are really hurting. And so when you have compassion and empathy as a counselor and a life coach because you have walked that path and you know how it sucks, people will be drawn to you. And that's the people we get. And on the flip side, guys, the thing that's so beautiful is that, and I don't, I think this has been, you know, for the last 30 years easily, um, as a counselor and a master life coach, we give assignments to our clients after every session. Most counselors don't do that, but we do. And I think that what we've attracted is we've attracted people that want change. And that is the greatest compliment that I receive is that we receive new clients every week and they're saying, you know, I heard you on this show or I read this book or I read this article you wrote and I am ready for change and you're the one because you've gone through this. And that is such a great compliment. Now, if I could have changed things, looking back at the years I struggled with addiction, would I have, oh, hell yes, but I can't. So I have no shame or guilt. I've worked through it. I've done my really deep work to release myself, to forgive myself for the things I did that were inappropriate during those years of addiction, and we move on. Mm-hmm. I'd like to talk about the, uh, in Greek mythology, Narcissus, right? He's the god that had fallen to the water. He fell in love with himself, looking at himself in the mirror. And do you, do you feel like even today or all your experiences to this point and the people in your lives, they were all, we talked about the man in the mirror, but the people that come into your lives, come into your life for that reason, season or lifetime, are they, do you think they're also putting up a mirror to you as well? Oh, absolutely. You know, I, I think one of the things that, and, and, and I'll make a mention on top of the Maharishi interview, you know, one of the things that, um, that really got me, moving to recovery, which was a long process, a a very deep process, a very hard process and so worth it, was that I was dating a woman who uh, came to me one day and we were on vacation and she was crying. And this is a woman that never cried. She never emoted a thing. And um, she said, I need to talk to you right now. And we went and sat down. Of course, I grabbed an extra glass of wine uh, as we sat down. And then she went on to tell me that because she didn't drink and I did, she felt that I would leave her. Um, and, you know, when we, when we think of the narcissistic personality, the narcissistic personality, which, by the way, in, in my opinion, there's very few narcissists in this world. That word is thrown around way too much. But on the scale, number one is simply a self-centered person. And anyone who's in addiction 
the addiction is much more important than your partner, no matter what you tell me. You can try to convince me your food addiction isn't as important as your partner, your nicotine addiction, your drug addiction, your television addiction, your alcohol addiction. You could say to me, so the cows come home, that you love your partner more than anything, but if you have an addiction, that's a lie. Because we will always choose our addiction over people. And so she reflected to me that I was going to leave her eventually I would leave her because she knew in the world of addiction that that is always going to come first. And it was a real eye, it was such an eye-opening discussion that we had that the very next day I called a treatment center and did the intake over the phone. That's how powerful it was when she reflected back to me that I would leave her at some point because I was more in love with my addiction than her. That is a powerful thing to hear. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Thanks for sharing so much. I mean, you're. I mean, we're kind of we cut to the bone right to the middle, right to the beginning. So I, I appreciate sharing. I thought we were going to talk about rainbows and unicorns at first. <laughs> you really got serious. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Let me let me ask you this, David. So we so last week we were, we were talking to a young gentleman, and he had referred me. I, I was familiar with Joseph Campbell, but he referred me to The Power of Myth on Netflix, and it had come out in the '80s. and And for those that haven't heard about him, uh, definitely check him out. There's a ton of videos of him on YouTube. He talks about the hero's journey, which is the basis for a lot of movies. But ultimately, he talked about when we incarnate that we incarnate with the understanding that we're going to go through some struggles and breakthroughs so we can learn from them and move on. And a a lot of the talk with law of attraction, positive thinking is so we don't go through any struggles or trials or tribulations. How do you, how do you get around or bring people back to earth as, Hey, you know what? We're not just going to, you're not going to be born into rainbows and unicorns and die. Yeah. Oh my God. Well, and what you just said is, is, you know, one of the biggest problems with the Law of Attraction is that there was a quote on Instagram from the Law of Attraction, a very famous Law of Attraction teacher the other day that just makes me cringe. And, and she posted, through the Law of Attraction, you will never have another negative thought or experience again. And I thought, and I, but see, guys, this is the insanity of this Law of Attraction nonsense. I mean, there's constantly crap being put up there like that. And I thought, you know, that's so sad because what does that mean? That means that everyone that follows that teaching is going to go into denial. They're, they're, and, and any emotion that we submerge, shame, guilt, insecurity, rage, anger, you name it, boredom, anything that we try to submerge is going to grow and it will come back and it will bite us in the butt harder than we could ever think. So... As a matter of fact, I'm, as we talk right now, I'm in this outrageous grieving position myself. My beautiful rescue dog on Thursday, in the middle of a radio interview, guys, I'll tell you this story because it was so profound, but I rescued him and he had had an abusive owner like many rescue dogs do. And... He, and he was in great health. He was almost 13. Every night, he, we still chased him around the house for a half an hour every night. He went on mile-and-a-half walks three times a day. He was in great shape. He, was a, he had the greatest attitude. And I'm on a radio interview from Texas Thursday morning, 
And, um, and my personal assistant, Mary Lou, brought him back in, and he drank water, and he jumped up on a chair next to me, and we're going through the interview. I looked over at him, and he was just laying there, relaxed. 20 minutes later into the interview, I hear this horrendous yelp, and the host heard it, uh, you know, on, on the other end, and he said, what is that? What just happened? And I said, I don't know, and I turned, and I looked, and Saint's mouth was open, and then his head just dropped. And... I jumped off the call, you know, I, the, the line was still open, and I found out later that, you know, I'm in the background screaming, saying, please don't leave me, please don't go, you know, and, and I'm crying and I'm screaming, and we did CPR for 10 minutes, we tried everything, and, and we couldn't, you know, we couldn't. And so now let's look at the real world, and the real world asks us to go into grief, and I have deeply, and I'll probably be going into grief for several more days. But in the, in the positive thinking, nonsensical world of the law of attraction, you're supposed to only think good thoughts. So people from that mindset will say, you know, he's in a better place. What the hell do you mean he's in a better place? He wasn't suffering. What kind of a ridiculous statement is that? Oh, you know what? You'll go. To, you'll get over with time. Just remember the good parts. No, that's BS. You have to be willing to go into the sadness, the grief, even the anger when something like this happens. I'm, not, I'm talking about a pet, but it's the same thing when you lose a best friend, when you lose a job. You know, like what's the silver lining? All that crap drives me nuts. It drives me insane because that is avoiding reality. And when people say to me, how do you feel about the law of attraction today? I'll say the number one thing is I am so disappointed that for 16 years I taught such nonsense. That's my first answer. My second answer is thank God there's a reality out there where that we can go into the sadness or the anxiety or the shame or the guilt or the boredom without having people tell us, oh, come on, think positively. Whatever you put out there is going to come back to you. It's like, no, that's not the reality of life. And so we're teaching reality, and that's why I believe personally that we've been able to help as many people as we have. Sorry sorry to hear sorry. about your dog, David. I'm, I'm a huge fan. I mean, dogs are awesome, and sorry, that, sorry you had to go through that. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I, the radio host texted us and said we had a shut the interview down because I couldn't handle hearing you scream to your dog. You know, I mean, it was that brutal. Um, and I am not a Pollyanna guy anymore. You know, you and the three of us are talking reality. Um, there, and, you know, the healing of grief, the loss of a lover, the loss of a family member, the loss of a job, a house, a pet, is not linear. You cannot force it to be linear. And that's what the positive thinking movement tries to make us do. The positive thinking movement puts everything in this little box. Let's look for the good parts of your dog, Saint. Let's, look at the, let's just look at pictures of when Saint was romping around. That's part of the grieving process and the healing. But that ain't the beginning of it. The beginning of it is going in and feeling and hysterically crying and going to the root of your pain. And then eventually, when the time is right, we can move into the remembrance. But it, for some people, guys, it might be 2, 10, 20 days. For someone else, it might be 8 months before they can 
really sit and look at happy pictures of someone or something that has passed and be okay. So don't look at grieving as linear. It's two steps forward, four steps back, four steps forward, two steps back. That's the process of life. Go ahead, David. I know you wanted to jump in. Oh, yeah, I was just going to ask, David, so you, you were talking about um, dealing and being in reality with stuff. So the woman that is the size, uh, like you said, size 18, and she wakes up every morning saying, oh, I'm a size 2, what, what, if she's dealing with reality, what should she be doing every morning instead of saying that? Oh, David, awesome question. So in, in our book, Focus, Slay Your Goals, we give examples of authentic affirmation. So if I was that woman, I'd be saying, you know, like, I am Kathy Smith, a size 18, excitedly moving towards a size 6 by eating clean six days a week and exercising six days a week. That's the affirmation. That would be it. That's all you need. I am excited to move from an I'm a, currently I'm an 18. I'm excited to move by a, to a 6 aside six, by eating clean and by exercising six days a week. That's the kind of affirmation that is real because we are excited and we want to go from an 18 to a six. But now we're adding the truth that we're not a six right now. We do have a program. We do have a plan. And if we stick with it, we'll get to six. So let's get excited every day and use affirmations that are realistic. And, and then down the road, you know, like you, you, you get to a six and you go, you know what, this is amazing, but I want to be a four. Great. Redo your affirmation. Now I am a size six from 18. I'm going to a four by doing the same darn thing I did before. You can continue to update it. But I really want people to be more realistic and to have their affirmations based on this reality that we're all talking about today versus some pie-in-the-sky thinking. Whew. It, it holds people back. The second part of that question I would have for you, David, is that I wanted to know if you've done any mirror work, because when you do the affirmations, you may be, you know, sitting in a room quietly or something, but there's something different when you actually look into your eyes in the mirror and your eyes can, it's the window to the soul, right? So you can see if you're lying to yourself or not. And some of the things that when you're looking into that mirror in those eyes, that, that uh, what do you call it, the procrastination or the self-doubt or worthiness issues may come up. So I just wanted to know your take on doing mirror work. Well, if we, David, if, if, if we're being honest with ourselves, and we're, and, and I love mirror affirmations, I think they're great. I, and remember, you know, like I didn't mention this, but before I go on, every morning the first hour is spent for me, every one of my first hours of every day is spent in affirmation, gratitude, journaling, meditation, because I believe it's that, that powerful. But then I let it go. I don't think a positive thought the rest of the day. I don't do anything else in the mind the rest of the day. I just go out and do work, and I have a plan, and I'll do things I don't want to do, and that's the whole premise of our existence. And over time, when you start doing things that you don't want to do, they just become who you are. It's effortless. So when we're using the mirror work, if and here this will be a trap to me, if you're using the mirror work and you're still saying things like, I am a size 6 when you're a size 18, in my opinion, you're still out of integrity and you're still lying to yourself. So to me, whether you do it in your mind or you do it looking in the mirror, to me the most important thing is, do I have integrity in my statements? 
do I have integrity? Am I being open and honest? Or am I just doing wishful mm-hmm. thinking stuff? Because remember I mentioned before, denial is so powerful that you could look in the mirror and you could say, hey, I remember listening to Hamza and David and, and David was talking about the mirror work and I'm going to start doing that and see if I'm lying to myself. With, with denial, you could be looking in, your, in the mirror, your eyes could be shifting back and forth and you could be saying, nope, that, it's true, I'm size six. <laughs> So be careful. Denial, I mean, denial kept me as an alcoholic and addict for years and years and years longer than necessary. Um, and I did a ton of mirror work back then. So I'd say do it any way you want as long as it's real and honest. Awesome. Thank, thank you for that. Um, I do want to go back a little bit. Cause I, I want to go back a little bit when you were going through your uh, learning experiences, let's say that. And... Uh, one thing that helped you, or at least make sense of that denial, you said that, uh, this is a topical question. So you said, this is what wealthy men do. And over this weekend, you know, a very infamous person uh, transitioned and the scuttlebutt on social media and all that, well, that's, he's wealthy, he's evil. That's what he, that's what they do. And, <laughs> right, I don't, I don't want to bring his name up because uh, YouTube will flag the video and I don't want our video taken down. Right. But, um, Right. But what do you, I mean, you probably thought that at one time, but do you still think that about wealthy people or, I mean, it seems like there's. Oh, oh my God, Hamza. You guys have great questions. You really, <laughs> this, is, this is just freaking awesome. So it, when, when you get out of, okay, so let's say this, when you're in the world of addiction, the odds are you're going to be finding mm-hmm. friends and associates who are in the same addiction that you're in. So if you're a smoker, you're going to look for people that smoke. If you're an overeater, you're going to look for people that overeat. If you're a drinker, you're going to look for people. So when you're looking for those people and you are in any type of an addiction, you will find them, and then that will validate that you're not alone, that you're just part of the masses. And everyone, like I used to say this all the time, everyone drinks. When, and I guess this is probably a cool example of what happens when we go into reality. When, we, when I got clean and sober, my very first lecture was in the Cayman Islands, and I had gone down there for years speaking for nonprofits. And every time I'd go, I'd, they'd put me up in a beautiful hotel, and the room would be stocked with wine, and you know, it was just a big party. I'd do my lecture, and then the next seven days, I'm just there to have a great time. When I got clean and I went back there, uh, oh, and the other thing I want to mention is that at the end of every motivational lecture when I was using I would get off the stage, and eventually some table would be waving at me, screaming, David, come on over and sit with us. And I'd go over, and they'd have bottles of wine, and we'd drink wine and have a great time. So here I am, clean and sober, down in the Cayman Islands, uh, where I've been many times before. And I get up on stage, I do my thing, I get off, and there's a table waving me over. And I come over, and I look at the table, because I was a little anxious, I was newly sober, didn't have a lot of, of, of confidence that I could pull this off for a long time. And I went to sit down and I looked at the table and it was all coffee cups. Hmm. There was no alcohol at all. And then the next thing, guys, I look around at the badges of the people that had invited me to sit with them. And they were all presidents of banks, presidents of huge corporations based in the Caymans or they had accounts in the Caymans. And I'm sitting there going, I am with the, the richest, the wealthiest people in the Cayman Islands, and not one of them is drinking. Mm. So there was a learning curve. 
You know, and I found that the reason why I had those statements, wealthy men drink and it's how we relax and it's how we network and all that, that was all nonsense because only about 30% of people in the United States struggle with alcohol. That means 70% does not. So when you are moving and transitioning from the world of addiction to non-addiction, the great news is in the world of alcohol is in many ways is that the majority of people don't have a problem with it. And as I look at my mentor, Joe Cerulli, who actually was homeless and became a multi-trillionaire, he's been my, my mentor since 1986. When I look at Joe and I would go and meet with Joe, Joe never drank. And when I quit drinking and would go and meet with Joe and he would be with you know, his buddies that were orthopedic surgeons or presidents of other companies, I'm noticing that if, they, if any of them drank, they would have like one drink at dinner and that's it. So I started to get this whole re-education mm-hmm. about how I had created that false statement that wealthy men drink and this is how wealthy men relax as a way to justify my continued drinking. And you, the second part of that question is you wrote books and then you said it was 20 years before you made you know, the bestseller list. And uh, I, the good thing and bad thing about Hollywood movies is you ride off to the sunset. So when you stopped your addiction, did you go through a period of your friends like, oh, you think you're better than us? And then they kind of got you back in there because you felt mm-hmm. guilty. So what was that process to ultimately keep your or sustain your addic- uh, addiction free life? Well, I, I had 90% of my friends leave immediately when I got clean. Um, it was a clearing of house. Uh, and what had happened when I got back from the treatment center, they all knew that I, was, I had gone to treatment. And I was back like two days, and a couple of them were saying, hey, we really hope the center was great for you. We, we're going to be here on Friday night. Just come out and have one. You don't have to have more than one. And I'm going, oh, my God, these guys don't get it, right? So mm-hmm. 90% of people just sort of left my life. And the 10% left, and there's, a, you know, a few very cool stories, but there was a buddy of mine of 35 years, Troy DeMond, that used to, we used to drink when we'd go on some of the speaking gigs and together and that. And um, when I got back, he texted me and said, hey, um, let's figure out something different to do when we hang out together other than drink. And by the way, if you ever find, if you and I are ever like in a restaurant or a bar or a, a party, I'll never drink while I'm around you. I want to support you through this transition. And that was an amazing text message. That was an amazing notification from someone. And and that's where you know your friends are. When you're trying to quit your spending or quit smoking or quit overeating or quit drinking or quit whatever it is, and your friends will come to the surface, your true friends will come to the surface in support. Your quasi-friends or older friends may try to bring you back into the fold, and that's where you have to have accountability partners to make sure you stay strong on your path of freedom. Absolutely. That's a really good point. And we are at the top of the hour, and this is the time where you leave your social media and all that. And I definitely want to follow you, but I have a question with that before you give that, because you, you had mentioned some of these Law of Attraction postings. You're just like, oh, my God. right? So I want to follow you to see if you're like the lone wolf <laughs> amongst the sheep, like, well, this guy's crazy. He's just a troll. And then I guess my question is, do you just let those people follow blindly because that's part of the process? 
Oh yeah, you know, like, and it's 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 really wild. When we made our transition out of the law of attraction, and and then we, you know, we wrote the book. Uh, finally, I I put the book together. Positive thinking will never change your life, but this book will. Um, we we have a lot of negative responses, which we expected. You know, a lot of people very angry. A lot of people that want the law of attraction to be real. They want checks coming in the mail with no effort. They want to go from an 18 to a 6 without effort. They want to find deep love without effort. You know, like all those type of people that have bought into the Kool-Aid, they get very frustrated when they'll see a post from myself um, stating that this is not reality. And But, you know, it, it's easy, guys, for me anyway, because it's just so easy to prove it. Like if the law of attraction was a law, it should work every time. I have yet to meet anyone in my entire life of 40 years in this work that told me that they became a millionaire via their thoughts, that they lost 100 pounds via their thoughts, or they found the love of their life via their thoughts. Now, with as long as I've been on radio and traveling the world speaking, by now I should have at least met one person. <laughs> I should have at least met one that said, David, all I did was wake up one day and said, I want $10,000 a day in the mail and checks and I'm fine. And it happened. I'm waiting for that one. I haven't heard it. I haven't found them yet, guys. <laughs> but maybe they're out there. <laughs> sure, sure. Uh, David, if you could, if you could uh, tell people where they can find positive thinking will not work, will not change your life, but this will. And my favorite angel on the surfboard and all of the good information where they can get in touch with you and learn more about you. That'd be great. Yeah. Hamza and David, it's really easy to remember for our gang. If they have a pen, it's just talkdavid.com, T-A-L-K david.com, talkdavid.com. Um, and on there, we give away so many free things. You know, you can sign up for the, the daily boost, and we send out a free three-minute video every morning. You can get that for free as a way to boost your spirits and get in alignment. We have a free meditation uh, audio on, on the program, on our website. There's just so much free stuff there that we encourage your listeners to go and grab all the free things they want. Uh, and it's talkdavid.com, talkdavid.com. Awesome. Awesome. Well, you have just been in tune to another episode of Intrinsic Motivation from a Homie's Perspective. This is Hamza. And I am David. And thank you to the other David. It was a pleasure, and, and we'd love to stay in touch with you, man. Oh, yeah. God. Hamza, David, I would be back with you both in a heartbeat. Whenever you need it, I'm there. Awesome, Great. Man. Cheers. Right. Yeah, it's been a blast. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks again for checking out another episode of Intrinsic Motivation from a Homie's Perspective podcast. Please check us out on our website at intrinsicmotivation.life where you can click on the speak pipe button and leave any suggestions for a future podcast that you'd like us to cover. Also check us out on our social media sites. We have a YouTube channel, Facebook page, iTunes podcast, in addition to Stitcher and Google Play, all under Intrinsic Motivation from a Homie's Perspective. Check you out next time. Have a great day.